right, let's start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these days of retreat. Thank you for the fraternity that we can share, but also the communion with you to which we are called. We ask that you may bless these days that we have set apart to draw closer to you. We thank you for the astounding fact that you have revealed yourself so that we may know you, and in knowing you, we may know ourselves and each other more truly. Ask your blessing upon this conference and then the time of silence that we will have following it. So during that time, we may enter into deeper knowledge of you, of others, and of ourselves. Make this prayer your most powerful name, Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so we return to the question I asked yesterday. Why did God make you? Because he loves us. Because he loves us? Absolutely. Actually, there's an African catechism that I really like. Uh, it was referenced by Chris Stefanik in his book that I had preached on last year. It said, why did God make you? Because he thought he'd like... No, he thought you'd like to exist. <laughs> yeah, just thought you'd, you'd enjoy existence. It'd be pretty all right. Uh, but according to our... The way that people in this country learned their catechism for generations and generations, that good old-fashioned Baltimore catechism, why did God make you? God made me to know him, to love him, and to serve him in this world, and to be happy with him forever in the next. And I think that's a beautiful summary. If you go to the catechism of the Catholic Church, you see that it essentially expands on that point most beautifully. Um, that whole first section where it, it speaks of man's capacity for God, man's yearning for God, and how God fulfills that in his revelation. So that's the point of your life, to know, love, and serve the Lord and to be happy with him. That's also the point of your priesthood, right? Uh, that in whatever vocation God calls you to, he's calling you to a deeper knowledge and love and service of himself and to lead others to do that if you're called to be the father of a family then you get to be um, intensely and intimately involved in the formation of just a few people um, in teaching them how to know and love and serve the lord in the priestly vocation you're being called to do that but for a much broader swath of people. You belong to the church, and, and you have that role really toward anyone that you encounter. You can know, okay, God has ordained me for the sacred person of purpose of helping this person to know him, to love him, and to serve him, and to be happy with him. Now, that is, at its essence, every Christian call. But in a particular way in the priesthood, we are called to know God and then to teach God. So to know God. Before we can speak of that, we need to reflect on our knowing in general. right? We, as uh, the human race, have a bit of a checkered history with knowledge. We could read in the first pages of Genesis. 
Genesis 2:16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, "You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die." And so there's a certain restriction put on our consumption of knowledge at the very beginning. And we hate it. Because we have an imperfect knowledge of God, we don't know him as being as trustworthy as he is. And so when he puts a limit on something, we exaggerate the limit. And we say, wait, what do you mean I can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What? That's probably the best tree. I love that tree. It's the most beautiful tree. Oh man, I suddenly start to despise all the other trees because they're not this tree. The one that I can't have. And doesn't that echo in our lives, <laughs> right? That um, the vocation other than the one that I'm pursuing is going to obviously look a lot more attractive to me. You might be dating a girl and the whole time looking at the altar like, oh, I would love to be there. And then the moment that you're serving at the altar, you see that girl and you're like, I would love to be there. <laughs> <laughs> There's this thought of I need to know all things and I need to have experiential knowledge of all things. And if I don't, I'm going to be somehow lacking. But in the beautiful poetry that is the first few chapters of Genesis, you see just a very beautiful realism of we have finite knowledge. No matter what, I, I, can, I can have more knowledge than any human being that's ever existed and still my mind has a limited capacity. There's a governor on it that says you will not be able to consume everything all at once. You have to learn things sequentially. Even the Lord of the universe, when he took on a human nature, allowed himself in some sense to be limited in what at any given time he uh, was knowing or the mode in which he was knowing it because he knew it as a human being. So you could say that the God of all creation still was able to grow in wisdom and grace, which is insane. (laughs) But that is the depth of the love that he has for us. So our beginnings with knowledge are that there is a limit to it. But of course, we know how that story continues. Initially, it seemed like Adam and Eve were able to respect that. Maybe there was a little bit of resentment of, wait, we can't eat of that one tree? But then what happened? The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did he actually say? There was the first wound that was created in man's knowledge. And it was that we ceased knowing God to be trustworthy because we let in, we let in a little bit of doubt. And just a little bit of doubt can go a very long way. Now, what do I mean by doubt? Critical thinking, questioning? No, that's all fine. To be seeking to understand something and being honest about the fact that it doesn't quite make sense to you That's one thing. That's perfectly fine. That's actually what faith is made out of, or theology at least, faith-seeking understanding. This kind of doubt is the doubt of the goodness of God's intentions. Doubting his goodness, his trustworthiness. And that was the very first move in the fall of man, 
was that we were we were told that God might not actually have said or meant what he said. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. You see, there is this desire. First, there was this doubt of God's goodness, this um, forgetfulness of how loving he was. And then when knowledge of God was made imperfect and wounded through that doubt, everything started to crumble. And at that point, instead of going to God as the source of wisdom and knowledge, as latching on to him as saying, Lord, I want to know you as you truly are, and so as you reveal yourself, I want to know you directly rather than just hearing some kind of a um, counterfeit, counterfeit version of you from this serpent. Once they departed from that, they, they started lusting after the wisdom that the tree could offer. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So once their knowledge of God was wounded, their knowledge of themselves became wounded. Because they saw themselves as naked and there was a problem with it. See, before they saw themselves as naked, it's not like they were dumb before and they're like, what? Oh my gosh, I can't believe I don't have clothes on. No, it was that they saw themselves as lacking. For the first time ever, they saw themselves as lacking and vulnerable in a bad way. Vulnerable to be attacked, to be taken advantage of. That knowledge of evil, of being taken advantage of, they had none of that before. When they had a perfect knowledge of God, all they had was a knowledge of one who was good, trustworthy, who would take care of them. Once doubt entered in and wounded that knowledge, they started looking at themselves as either threatened or a threat. <laughs> right? They, they, they saw themselves for the first time as lacking and as in danger. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. There's fear, there's a distorted self-knowledge, and then there's hiding. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So you see, wounded knowledge of God became wounded knowledge of ourselves and then became a wounded knowledge of others. Instead of having others be um, 
those with whom I cooperate in the work of my life, they became threats or they became the excuses that I have for why I'm so messed up. The man who was supposed to heed the word of God says instead, no, 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 it's the woman that you put here. She is the reason why I fell. So it's uh, there a double blame of saying like, it's her fault, but ultimately it's your fault for putting her here. And how often is that us with our sin? Right, especially sixth and ninth commandment. Well, if women didn't dress the way that they dressed, then I would have perfect, perfect uh, virtue of chastity. It's like, no, no, you wouldn't. Like, sorry, they, they could be in ankle-length dresses, and you'd be like, oh man, do you see that bit of ankle right there? That was nice. Because it, it, it's about you to be able to develop that virtue of chastity. But at that moment of the first fall, we were broken at th- all three levels of relationship. The relationship we have with God, the relationship we have with others, and the relationship we have with self. All of those were wounded, and our knowledge in all three of those um, levels of relationship ended up becoming distorted. We began the blame game, which has continued ever since. So, knowing God is intimately and essentially wrapped up with trusting him and knowing anything else rightly. Knowing that God exists is not the same as knowing God as he is. You see, at that moment of the serpent's first lie, he didn't say God isn't real. He didn't say, oh, that was all a hallucination. What he said is, can you really trust God? And so you could still know facts about him, like, oh, he is the creator of all things. But if you don't know him, doubt can enter in. So you say, he's the creator of all things, but he's probably disappointed in me. He's creator of all things, but I'm probably just hanging on a little thread because he's this angry God who just would love to smite me at any moment. Knowing facts about God, great. But it's no substitution for knowing God. Those two actually flow into each other. They're not opposed. So knowing God is more than knowing facts about him. But it's not less than knowing facts about him. Too often people will have this dichotomy of either uh, I, I know a lot of theological facts, but I never pray, or I pray all the time, and I am above all of this theology business. God is the great unknown, and I enter into it. And it's like, okay, cool, fine, call him a mystery, but enter into the mystery. Don't just stand outside of it and say, like, oh, he's unknowable. That's just lazy. <laughs> or it's fearful. But in any case, we've got to dive into it. So, this episode beautifully reveals that we cannot do anything outside of the nexus of relationships that are essential to being human. Our relationship with God, with ourselves, and with others. Wounded knowledge of God affected knowledge of each other and knowledge of self, and it all is interrelated. And so, if we're going to speak today about knowing God... We have to speak about just knowing in general, knowing ourselves, knowing others. So, the whole of Christian life in general, and priestly formation in particular, is meant to heal that primordial wound we carry when it comes to knowing and being known. I think two 
too often we think of formation just as preparation for something, for some job that I'm supposed to take on. It's meant to be me putting on some external mold. But it's actually a work of healing before it's anything else. Like we we go, because the world's already formed us, seminary is supposed to reform us, right? Uh, we've, We've got all these broken bones that have been Um, growing out of place in the wrong way. And sometimes the work of formation is to re-break that bone, but then set it right so that it can grow correctly. We have all of these habits of hiding that we learn from Adam and Eve, right? From the very beginning, they heard the Lord, they were fearful, and they hid. Well, we, we do a lot of that. And our lives and the ways that we've continued to be wounded have had us perpetuate that kind of a behavior. The work of all Christian formation, but priestly formation in particular, is to get us to a point where we can know God as he is and be known by him in vulnerability and trust. And to have that relationship be so strong that we can start knowing our own selves without judgment, self-reproach, self-loathing, but instead with this acceptance that leads to possession, that leads to gift. I'm sure you've heard that trajectory more times than you can count. That before you can give yourself, which is what we're here for, we say, like, I want to give myself as a holy priest. You can't give what you don't have. You can't possess what you haven't accepted. And you can't accept what you don't know. And so it all begins with knowledge of God, of self, And that allows for a genuine knowledge of others. So interestingly enough, knowing and being known is both the purpose and the prerequisite for good formation. So it is the ultimate goal, but also what you need even to do any of it. Now, as a prerequisite, it is the capacity and the disposition to be truly known. And that can be really tough for us. Because depending on what we are bringing to the, the table from our past, it might be extremely difficult for us to open up. Maybe the last several times we've tried to open up, the person did not respond the way that we wanted, and so we just closed in and put more fig leaves on, and we said, no, 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 I can't be known, because if I'm known, I'll be rejected. And I can't be rejected one more time, because so I don't know how I'll be able to take that. If I'm known, I'm going to be misunderstood. And so I, I, I don't want any of that. So the prerequisite is to have a capacity to be known and a disposition of saying, you know what? I'm not just going to like reveal myself completely to everybody, but in the right, um, in the right forum, I am actually willing to have someone know me as I am, not as I project myself to be. Because, I mean not only formation, but even beforehand for like discernment retreats and things like that, a lot of it's posturing. A lot of it's like, I am really good at praying and reading and stuff, and I have never sinned in my life. Or it goes the other way, like, I am really good at revealing my faults way better than anybody else. (laughs) Or it's just this like, whatever the box is, I want to check it. Whatever's going to impress you, I want to do it. Instead of, yeah, I want to be known. 
the good, the bad, and the ugly. I, I want all of that to be presented before somebody who has earned the right to that so that I can be accepted by another and the work of formation may begin. I'm not going to pretend there's nothing good about myself, nor am I going to pretend like there's nothing bad about myself. Instead, I'm going to say, this is it. This is me. This is the mess. You're, you are free to enter into it with me if you would like. That's what the relationship with a formation advisor and a spiritual director is meant to look like. So, before we get to knowledge of God, we'll focus on these other two levels. Knowing self and knowing others. First, knowledge of self. The thing we most desire in life is to be truly known. The thing we most fear in life is to be truly known. And it's weird because those two really coincide. Because we think that when... I mean, we hate being misunderstood, right? And so in those moments, it's like, oh, I wish that they could just see my heart right now. But then at the same time, when someone's finally at that level, of like they're on the precipice of finally seeing your heart, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Who lets you in here? You get, you get out of here right now. Because we recognize that in the very same heart... I'm not sure I understand. I don't understand that. <laughs> uh, in that very same heart there is this mixture of good and bad intentions, of memories of great experiences of God and those traumatic memories of when he was either seemed absent or when we pushed him away. And we don't want people to know all of that. And so we get into a habit of hiding. But in the spiritual masterpiece, The Dialogue, where it's, uh, dialogue between St. Catherine of Siena and the Lord Jesus, the Lord references self-knowledge over 200 times in just that one dialogue. And he highlights how indispensable it is in our spiritual lives. Calls it the root of the tree or the foundation of the house. It is something that is incredibly important, but something that I think we hide from far too often. We're so scared of it. The good, the bad, and the ugly, we hide from all of it. Sometimes we hide from the good. We think, you know what? I've been told that humility and repentance are important things. So I'm going to go to that extreme. I'm not going to look at how I actually am, a mix of good and bad and uh, everything in between. Instead, I'm going to pretend I can do no good. Anytime someone compliments me, well, yeah, but I'm a, I'm a wretched sinner. And it's like, no, 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 I'm trying to say something good about me. No, if you really knew me, I'm just the worst. After a while, you don't want to talk to that person <laughs> at all. You're like, good morning. It would be good if I weren't so bad. <laughs> uh, so you've got on that one side the extreme, because it's always more comfortable on the extremes, because that's, that's where you can hide. If you're in the middle, you're like, oh, no, no, no. What, can I, what can I kind of curl up against? But the extremes, the extreme of this uh, false modesty, we, we hide up against that wall. And it's not the truth of who we are, but at least it's comfortable. Because it's like, I have a guaranteed answer for any time somebody says something good, i got to counter with something terrible about myself. Or the other extreme of narcissism. Uh, which actually, I would argue both of those are the same coin of narcissism. This preoccupation with self and projecting a certain image of self. But there's either I can do no right, or the other extreme of I can do no wrong. 
And so we, we either become um, this kind of liability of, oh, don't trust me, I can't do anything right, or we become this victim of like, I've done everything right, but if everybody else would just get on board, right? If they would be as spiritually mature as I am, if they would have the same experiences that I did, if they understood where I was coming from, then maybe we'd be getting along. But I'm surrounded by problems, right? All of these people are the problem, and I am the one saint in the whole bunch, and it's really hard. So in lieu of truly knowing ourselves, we tend to assume that either we can only do wrong or we can do no wrong. You know what happens when you assume? You go body and soul into heaven like Mary Immaculate, right? (laughs) So knowing self has been injured. Instead of knowing ourselves, we assume the worst or the best. Knowing others. Well, our fear of knowing ourselves then makes it difficult to know others. And this is in part because we don't want to be known. Once you enter into a relationship with someone, it's got to be bi-directional, right? You know them and they know you. I'm speaking most uh, uh, of friendships. And that's what our heart longs for so much because we are made in the image and likeness of the eternal relationship of the Trinity, of that which can be called, you can, might be a theological stretch, but I don't think so. You can say you are made in the image and likeness of eternal friendship, We yearn for it, but we're so scared of it. Because knowing and being known, that's an adventure. Because there there is a lot to you and a lot to this other person that is beyond either person's control. And so because we find it difficult to know others, we tend to have superficial relationships. Only ever talking about things, but never each other. And... This is something that I've seen play out, unfortunately, in some priests who ended up having a very difficult life and left the priesthood in various different ways. And I realized in retrospect, they never let themselves be known. They would hide behind intellectual questions. How are you doing? Well, I was reading in St. Thomas Aquinas the other day. And it just went straight into that level of let's talk about something that's not me because I don't want to know me or you because let's face it, I don't want to know you. (laughs) Or how are you doing? Well, the Celtics lost and it just goes straight to something else. And I get it. We can have superficial relationships with many people, right? You can't have this super deep relationship with everybody. You're a finite creature. But if you don't have anybody and especially if you don't have any brothers, that you can speak to at that level, that's something to bring to the Lord and to say, Lord, I, I, I need a friendship like that where I can be known and know in a healthy way, that I can be accepted by a brother. So you might have these superficial relationships where you hide behind something, whether it be an intellectual conversation, whether it be piety. You can hide behind piety. <laughs> you can just say like, oh, hey, how are you doing? Instead of talking, let's pray a rosary. It's like, I love the rosary, it's great, but at a certain point, we should probably talk, too. (laughs) Or, how are you doing? Well, you know, the Lord is so good. And just leaving it at that, it's like, yeah, the Lord's good no matter how you're doing. Quit deflecting. How are you? Or you could hide behind humor. Of just always making a joke out of everything, because inside, you're a little scared. (laughs) 
but you don't know you, you don't know your desires, and because of that, you don't want anybody to wade into those uncertain waters either. Or there's the knowing of social media. And this is one that's tough for you all because you're so far away from home that you do actually need to connect to people in some way. And social media can be a great way to do that, but it can also give you a false idea of intimacy. Because you could think, oh, I'm so close to my friends from high school. I know all these things that are happening in their lives. And the last time I talked to them was eight years ago. Okay, that's right. I've just been creeping on social media. <laughs> and it's designed to give you this sense of closeness to people, but without it costing anything. I didn't have to take the time to call someone. I didn't have to intentionally reveal something to just one person. Instead, I saw what they broadcast to everybody in general and no one in particular. And then when I shared my stuff, I broadcast it to everyone in general and nobody in particular. And I got a little bit, like a tiny little dopamine high, like, ooh, ah, I'm sharing with people. But then there was nobody there to actually be growing in a relationship with. And so social media is fine, but if that is your main way to connect with people, and it's never in a very personal engagement, but more in just a broadcast it all out there with a shotgun post, you're avoiding knowing and being known. And that's something to bring to the Lord and just call yourself out on. It doesn't have to be this like, oh, I'm the worst person in the world. I knew it. I don't know anybody. Nobody knows me. But instead of just say like, oh, okay, God, you're inviting me to grow in this. Thank you. And you're good. So, knowing others. We assume, because when we don't know, we assume. Uh, just like with ourselves. If we don't know ourselves and accept and possess and then be, cap are, be capable of giving ourselves, then we just assume either the worst or the best. Either we are at fault for everything or we are at fault for nothing and we are the victims of everything. With others, we assume that they don't care. Maybe because once or twice they didn't quite have the time for us, or they did, we weren't tracking. Uh, we, we, we didn't connect at the same level, and so we assume, oh, I can never reveal anything of myself to this person again because they don't care. They don't care what I'm going through. Maybe they didn't have the reaction that we wanted, so we assumed indifference on their part. We assume others can't be trusted. Or we assume that they are too good for us. Like, oh no, if they knew my past, if they knew my present, right? Still the crazy thoughts that I have and the mixed motives that I have. No, 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 they, they would never love me. Or we assume we're too good for them. Oh, I'm in like the, the sixth or seventh mansion by now. And this guy, <laughs> this guy wants to talk about Stuff other than God all the time? Pfft, idiot. And we, we shield ourselves from knowing and being truly known. We can do this with our peers. We can do this with our formators, with our spiritual directors. And we can, we can put a pious coating on that and be able to say, like, I'm only the Lord's and only he knows me. And, like, that's true, that only he knows you to the depths of who you are. But when you restore that relationship of knowing him rightly and being known by him well, or allowing yourself to know how he knows you, 
then he invites you into the relationships that he placed you in, right? It's not like he made a mistake when he sent you to seminary. And it's not like he made a mistake when he uh, grew you up in the context of a family. It's not a mistake that he put the desire for friendship on your heart. And so he's the one inviting you to not only grow in your knowledge of him, but to grow in your knowledge of self and knowledge of others. And so all of those things that we experience in our woundedness and knowing others, we project onto God, that ultimate other. And we basically say, God, you, you probably don't care. <laughs> say, God, I don't know if you can be trusted, right? I don't want to reveal myself and all of the mess to you. Or I want to exaggerate the mess or ignore the mess, but I don't want to wade into it with you. Because I'm scared that maybe when we get to that place, you'll reveal to me something that I don't want. And so let's just keep it at a superficial level. I'll say my prayers, but I won't enter into prayer. I will read about you, but I won't speak to you. And that's what the Lord wants to heal in us. And when we get it right in our relationship with God, we are more capable of getting it right in the other relationships. So how do we know God? Well, as I said at the beginning, study and prayer are not either ors. It has to be a both and. Because it is a, a counterfeit love that says, I love this person, but I don't want to know any facts about them. <laughs> like, that, that, that's absurd. Like, the moment that you enter into a relationship with someone, you don't just sit there and say, like, mm, okay, well, let's not talk ever. No, you say, like, oh, where are you from? Like, what do you like to do? How do you feel about this and about that? And, and, and you have a conversation where there's this mutual shared, there's this mutual self-revelation. And that's ultimately what... Um, is the lifeblood of any relationship, is mutual self-revelation. Going back to the Facebook example or Instagram or whatever you want to use, um, I know some stuff about some of my friends and extended family members that I haven't talked to in years. I haven't grown in that relationship at all, though. Because I, I know information, but it wasn't given in the context of Free, mutual self-revelation. I know some things about Michael Jordan, right? He was the one that I did most of my uh, reports on when I was in elementary school, right? February 17th, 1963 is a day that will live on for eternity. <laughs> I've never met the guy. You know what? There's a good chance I won't like the guy <laughs> if I do meet him. But sometimes we treat God that way. Instead of entering into a relationship with him where his revelation is revelation to me specifically, rather than just to humanity on a Wikipedia page that is the Bible, it, 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 we can try to just live at that place of information gathering with the Lord. Instead of the place of, when I read scripture, I read this as God saying to me, my son, this is who I am. When I engage sacred scripture, I can either engage it in a way that I'm trying to dissect a dead thing and just pick it apart and try to get some information out of it, like an autopsy, or I can engage it as a conversation with the living God who is speaking to me specifically in that moment. 
And so it is with the truths of the faith. Right? Sometimes we can, we'll do this beautiful Lexio Divina with scripture, but then whatever the church says, we go, whatever. It's just Francis or it's just uh, Benedict or I don't know, whoever you want to like, dismiss because you're smarter than they are, go for it. Um, you're also wrong. <laughs> when the church speaks, it is mom saying to you, my son, this is what I have to say to you. I, I want you to know about your father. And so if you could just trust me, then this relationship will grow. So in our study of scripture and of what the church has uh, taught over the centuries and teaches today, we can do it in a dispassionate way where uh, it's kind of impersonal and we're just trying to mine it for information. Or we can recognize this is my way of knowing God. Right? It's not just learning facts about him, but it is learning facts about him in the context of a relationship where I want to know him. When I study the church, I don't want to just know it, I want to know her. Right? I don't want to just learn about like what did the institution say, but what is my mother teaching me? So there's study, but then prayer. Right? In our prayer, we will know God to the extent to which we reveal ourselves to him, right? Because he's already perfectly revealing himself. He has given us scripture. He has given us the church. He has given us uh, so many mystical experiences over the, the centuries. Even in our own personal prayer, we can know him, but it's almost like the, the degree to which we know him is dependent on the degree to which we say to him, I want to allow myself to be known by you. And there's a trap that we can fall into there of saying, he already knows me perfectly. What can I teach him? Right? Like, what can I tell him that he doesn't already know? And there I say it's a trap because you're not giving him new information. You're giving him the gift that only you can ever give him of your free self-revelation. It's essentially, he already sees your Facebook feed, right? He already knows all that's happening. He knows it most perfectly. He already knows the interior depths of your heart, but he hasn't been given any of that. He knows it in his omniscience, but he doesn't know it in the context of your relationship with him. And so that self-knowledge or that knowledge of God becomes perfected when we have that self-revelation to him. And it's at that point that the other levels of our knowing end up being perfected. Because when I reveal myself to the Lord, as I grow in that relationship with him, my self-knowledge starts to grow. And that foundation of the building that St. Catherine would speak of, or that the Lord would speak of to St. Catherine, begins to be built. Because I, I'm able to see myself not through the lens of my own kind of failed expectations of myself, not through the lens of my own self-loathing, not through the lens of my perfectionism, not through the lens of my narcissism, not through the lens of a victim mentality, but I can see myself reflected in the loving eyes of my father. And what I love is that little detail that when you look at someone's eyes, you see what they're seeing, but flipped upside down, right? 
Well, uh, has anybody here read G.K. Chesterton's biography of St. Francis of Assisi? Oh, it's so good. But he has this uh, image. He says that uh, he was very childlike. And what is it that children love to do? Hang off of things upside down. Right, my nieces and nephews, they love it when I just hold them by the ankles and they could see the world upside down. I remember when I was a kid, I would lay on the side of the bed and pretend that the ceiling was the floor. And he said that his image of St. Francis of Assisi was of a man who was hanging upside down on a tree branch, who looked crazy to all around him, but he was the only one that could see things as they truly are. Not self-sufficient and growing on their own, but hanging in this utter dependence on God who lovingly holds them in existence. And when we see ourselves reflected in the loving eyes of our Father, we can recognize, like he flips everything upside down. We think, you're disappointed in me and I have to be perfect. And he says, I'm so proud of you that you're trying and I'm here to perfect you. (laughs) We might say, I am supposed to be utterly independent and need nobody. And he says, I, out of love for you, embraced needing people. Right? I, I needed Mary and Joseph. Not in an absolute sense, but in the sense that I, I willed it to be so, that in my providence, I was utterly dependent on these people. And that dependence has continued. He's dependent. By, by love, he has made himself dependent on the hands of sinful priests to be called down onto that altar and to be distributed lovingly to his people. Right, that dependence on Mary has continued in a chosen dependence on the priest. And when we see ourselves in his eyes, flipped upside down, we, re- we realize the goal is not to be impressive. The goal is not to be independent and self-sufficient. The goal is to rejoice in our dependence on the Lord, to let ourselves be totally known by him through that self-revelation of how we're doing, how our day's been going, what our fears are, what our hopes are, everything in between. And then when we have that capacity to reveal ourselves, be healed and restored in that relationship with the Lord, we can then, in our relationship with ourselves, be able to have a proper acceptance, possession, and capacity to give. We can stop wasting so much time with... um, directionless self-reproach. So that's very often the case. The, the, our first few minutes of prayer, it's not like, oh, Lord, you're so good. But instead, I know I should have been here five minutes ago. Oh, I'm the worst. Oh, and I, and I, I, could have, I could have changed the way that I structured my day. And we waste so much time in the presence of the king of the universe by focusing on ourselves. Because maybe we've internalized a little bit of that counterfeit self-knowledge that is just everything about me is bad. When we have that, that genuine self-knowledge that grows in that self-revelation of, our, of ourselves to, to the Lord, we are able to finally embrace where our gifts are and where our shortcomings are. Because the, the temptation is to want to be completely impressive in every aspect of who we are. That's not realistic. Like God has made us in community because each of us have gifts and shortcomings that complement each other. It's perfectly all right to be able to say, you know what? 
I, I love prayer. I'm very good at it. But I'm really bad at social skills. And I need to grow there. Or to say, like, my social skills are great, but my study habits are terrible. And, and to be able to just have this good appreciation of where I need help and where I need to give help. Because if you have a gift, it was meant to be shared. If you have a shortcoming, it was so that someone else can share with you. Father Franklin uh, Iwagwu, who was my parochial vicar for, uh, I mean, lived with me for the past two years, uh, he was amazed when he went to seminary. He was like, why don't guys study together more? It was like, like he, he was just amazed that guys were trying to all kind of do it on their own instead of trying to share their gifts with, with each other. And he, yeah, he was like kind of flabbergasted that, that guys treated it as like, nope, this is my thing that I have to do absolutely in isolation on my own instead of realizing this is the corporate work of all of us to help form each other. But we can't get to that point if we don't know ourselves enough to know where our gifts are, where our shortcomings are, and then have that that we can bring to the table of knowing each other and being able to, um, everyone's favorite word, fraternally correct. <laughs> like we, we can only do that if we have this, this self-knowledge that really is humility that says, yeah, I've got some things that I'm good at and I've got some things that I'm bad at. And I can accurately judge some things, right? I don't have to uh, pretend otherwise. I'm, I might be very much right in what I'm approaching my brother about. But if I have that sufficient self-knowledge and knowledge of God, my loving Father, I can approach that in a manner that does not automatically make him defensive. But instead I could say like, hey, this is what I've noticed. Um, I, I think I might be able to help you with it. And if, if you don't want that or it's just not the right time, totally get it. But I can help you with this, or at least I think I can. Um, I think that's a lot different than like, all right, you got to shape up, man. You're just, you're just pretty awful. Well, bye now. In the peace of Christ, I love you. <laughs> uh, um, so to wrap things up. In this period of silence that we're going to have, I would like for us to be able to enter into just an exploration of, have I let myself be known by God, by my own self, by others? Where are the fig leaves in my life? What am I hiding from? Like, I don't want to see that part of myself. I don't want anybody else to see that part of myself. Not even a confessor, not even a spiritual director. And where am I hiding from God? And then, how am I seeking to know God? And to know myself and to know others better? Like, well, what am I doing to actually get to know God? Or have I kind of pretended that I've plateaued, like, oh, I know him as well as I'm ever gonna, so I, I, I don't really need to do much. And then you can even ask yourself, what in my life in seminary have I not allowed to be a path to greater knowledge of God? Because sometimes we assume, like, oh, I'm going to start learning about God once I'm studying theology. But right now, gen eds, ugh, philosophy, gross. Instead of realizing 
every single one of these things is meant to be a path to knowing God better, to knowing others better, to knowing yourself better. You might think, what's a literature class going to teach me about God? A lot, actually. Right? Because it, it, literature is parables. And Jesus loved speaking in parables. You get to know the human heart and the human condition so much better, sometimes through reading a poem, reading a novel, watching a show even. And that capacity for empathy of really knowing a person, not just at the level of facts about them, but trying to share the experience that they're having, trying to see from the inside of how they might be feeling, sometimes that is developed through the humanities, through uh, reading uh, history or literature or poetry. You might think, well, okay, but my science class, that's not going to teach me more, much about God. Sure it will. Just like seeing, some, seeing an artist's work tells you a little bit about that artist. Science and mathematics, oh my gosh. If you look at it through the lens of, I can see a little bit of the beauty of the creator through the structure he has placed into reality, oh man, you can draw closer to him through that. And then philosophy, teaching you how to know, teaching you how to think, that could be a beautiful path deeper into the heart of God. And so in addition to how have I let myself or not let myself be known by God, by others, by self, it could be, where is the Lord trying to make himself known? And I might have been rejecting the path to knowing him there. Because you were made to know him. And as it is said in believe it's the first letter of St. John. Let me find it. This, oh no, from the Gospel of John. <laughs> when our Lord is praying to his heavenly Father, he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We are made to know him. And in knowing him to finally know ourselves. And in knowing ourselves, be able to know others as they truly are. So my prayer is that we will be able to enter into this knowledge of God, self, and others over these hours. And then at 11, uh, be able to uh, enter into um, adoration of that God who knows us and loves us to the core.